the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Today on Church of the Week, a conversation with the lead pastor of Hillside Church of San Jose, Dr. Keith Crosby. Dr. Crosby holds his B.A. in political science and earned his MDiv and doctorate in ministry degrees from the Master's Seminary. He served in the outreach department at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, also as an English pastor at a Mandarin Baptist Church of San Fernando Valley and a senior pastor at Bethel Baptist Church before coming to Hillside in 2016. Dr. Crosby and his wife, Terry, have two daughters, Grace and Anna. And we understand there are no ties to the famous crooner, but it's rumored that he does occasionally sing in the shower. And Pastor Crosby, a delight to have you join us. It's great to be here, and the rumors are true, but I don't know that I want to go beyond that. Thanks. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, a delight to get a chance to spend some time with you and, um, and get an opportunity to talk not only about what God is doing at Hillside Church of San Jose, but also your heartbeat for the church here in the Bay Area. And of course, we, we come at this very interesting juncture in history. In fact, your tenure at Hillside Church is an interesting time in in history. You're right there in the very heart of the Silicon Valley. I know that you've shared with me privately in the past your burden for reaching people that are deep into technology and see that as the future, to also talk to them about this timeless God of the ages. And with that in mind, give, give me your sense as you kind of look back on your, your five years now in San Jose. What is God doing? You know, God is doing what he's always done. He's calling sinners to repentance, to forgiveness. He, you know, he stands ready, willing, and able to forgive anybody for anything if they'll accept his free gift of grace and salvation. And what we're trying to do here is to introduce people to that message. Our, our goal for the last five years is to change this community and this world one soul at a time with the message of Jesus Christ. And we do that by being an authentic Christian and in our authenticity and humility, trying to bring people to Christ and then build them up in the faith as they embrace Christ. We were sharing a bit before we came on the air today about the notion that the current state of what's going on in the country, in the world, really, in relationship to the impact of COVID, the tragic loss of life, the number of people that have suffered at so many levels because of this terrible pandemic, and how that in many respects it tends to bring out both the best and the worst in people. Do you think that's also true in terms of the church, that sometimes there are periods of trial or great persecution that will either bring out the best in the church, meaning boldly moving forward and continuing without fear to preach the gospel, versus the the worst of the church, meaning kind of running for cover, hiding out in the catacombs and hoping nobody sees you? I think that's true, Craig. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Charles Dickens in uh, Tale of Two Cities who said it's the best of times and the worst of times, and I think that's what we're living in right now. I think we're living in an era, particularly in this country, where uh, this is the most probably one of the most difficult times for the church in America. Uh, from the governor's mansion here in California to the White House, we have uh, administrations who, shall we say, are not Christian or church friendly necessarily. And I think we have a culture that is post-Christian. Uh, they tend to label us as intolerant or bigots or things like that. And sometimes Christian people play into that stereotype, and I think pastors and churches and congregations do face a fork in the road. They can try to cut a deal with the culture. They can compromise their message. Uh, they can bury their head in the sand and hope their problems go away. Or, as I said earlier, we can play offense for the kingdom of God. And I think that God always calls his people to be faithful, and the Christian faith is 
a faith where we put our trust in a suffering Savior who also causes us to suffer. And so I think for a church to thrive and survive, as many churches are doing in this area, you cannot compromise with the culture. You just have to you know, sort of uh, take your licks, as it were, in the community and just try to present Christ as faithfully and with as much conviction and, and compassion as you can. But there is no room for compromise. And perhaps moments of, of stress and challenge, it might be easier for somebody to say, well, look, that road ahead, that's wide. We can kind of get a sense of where that's headed. Let's take that nice wide path, not recognizing that without failure, it inevitably leads right off the cliff. Taking that narrow road, that narrow path, not as fun, lots of twists and turns, very challenging at times, but in the end, the most productive, both in terms of the quality of the kind of Christian life that we live out, the sort of impact that we have in the lives around us, and the nature and totality of our relationship with Christ. And I suppose the big dividing line between the two, kind of that sense of separation of the wheat from the chaff, must largely be those who are learned, who have studied to show themselves approved, who drove into the Word of God, learned it and applied it versus those that kind of look at the Bible maybe as either a suggestion book or something at least nice to press flowers in on the coffee table. Well, that's it. You know, and it really does come down to uh, how you look at the Bible is how you look at God. If the Bible is just another book of wisdom, then this God that we serve is just one God and a pantheon of gods. And that's why one of the things we try to emphasize here at Hillside is we can either blend in with the culture which makes us entirely irrelevant, just another social club, or we can stand out for Christ. And we can stand out in ways that are positive, where people look at us, our willingness to suffer for what we believe, our willingness to love the unlovable, and our willingness to share the gospel, whatever the cost, personally, professionally, or otherwise. And by God's grace, uh, they see something different in us. And we may, in some cases, get a fair hearing from someone. Uh, We know that many are called and few are chosen, as Jesus talks about. And we know that, as he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and you just referred to it, that wide is the way that leads to destruction. And that's a well-populated and well-traveled road. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And we want to take the narrow road. Uh, That might be the road less traveled, but it's the road that God has called us to tread upon and to try to take as many people with us, humanly speaking. In that process, uh, oftentimes the church will get accused of uh, of being kind of a downer. We're, <laughs> we're the party pooper crowd, uh, meaning that we have a longer list of don'ts than we do a list of do's. I've even heard it articulated that people get a very clear understanding of what it is the church is against, but are really not clear on what the church stands for. And I would wonder in the process of being about the master's business in that that salt and light that is so desperately needed in this world today, if there are things that the church can and should be doing to do a better job at proclaiming truth, at at turning on that light to dispel the darkness. You know, you make a very good point, Craig. I think what's happened in many cases, many of the churches, uh, many of the uh, accusations against the church ring true, because in some sense, uh, Many times Christians lose perspective and they look for worldly solutions to spiritual problems. I'm I'm just struck today that so many people have turned to politics for and they're looking for a political savior. They're looking for someone to come in and fix everything that's broken. And in reality, uh, we're falling into, in many cases, not always, but many churches fall into the same trap. And many Christians who make up these churches fall into the same trap that the Jewish people fell into when Jesus came. They were looking for a political Messiah, a military leader, uh, and they missed the true Messiah. And sometimes, sometimes Christians are seeking political and social solutions to theological, spiritual, and moral problems. And when we do that, we do look like a bunch of legalists. Our conversation today with Pastor Keith Crosby, lead pastor at Hillside Church of San Jose. Maybe you can spend a couple of minutes, Pastor, talking to us a bit about what God is doing, um, not only through your pulpit ministry, but in the life and ministry of Hillside Church. 
Well, you know, God is doing amazing things. Uh, over the last five years, the church has grown. I think 45% of the people who attend today have been here less than five years. They have a love for God. They have a love for each other. And we've really been kind of outreach focused. We've sent out tons of missionaries from this church over the last 50 years. I don't know in the last several years we were as good at local outreach. That's where we're putting our effort right now. We want to make disciples. We want to lead people to Christ. So we've done a series of events. We're going to do Fall Fest, October 30th. It's a big outdoor festival. There will be games and trunk or treat and food trucks and all kinds of activities for the family outdoors. It'll be safe, you know, in terms of the COVID thing and everything else. Another exciting thing is, and thanks to KFAX, you know, you broadcast our sermons from south of Gilroy to north of San Francisco. We have a lot of people, because some of the churches have been slow to reopen, for whatever reason, who have been attracted to our church. And then the live streaming, of course, that's a whole other feature. So we've had people driving from San Francisco, Oakland, Palo Alto, uh, Milpitas, and things like that. And it's hard for them to drive that distance. And so I think God has called us to plant a church, City Light Bible Church in Santa Clara. And that way, nobody has to drive me driving from San Francisco every Sunday. So we're going to try to plant that church, and it will have its grand opening September of 2022. So we are looking to uh, not rearrange furniture with inside the kingdom of God, but to plant a church that multiplies disciples, that leads people to Christ, and that expands the reach. So we're really excited. Our people are excited to share the gospel We have something we call the search party. Thursday nights, they go out to different places, the Communications Hill, the Prune Yard, different places, and they talk to people, ask if they can pray for them, and try to introduce them to Christ. And we're getting people doing that in every age group. It's not just older people. It's younger people. Our church is diverse. It has grown in its diversity over the last five years. And we're just excited to serve Christ in this community. And we can sense his presence and feel his power. And we are just thrilled to be here and raised up for such a time as this. Well, I got to tell you, I'm I'm not at all surprised to hear that people are willing to drive that far. It just once again goes to prove the theory that hungry people will go in seek of solid food. And Mm -hmm. I never hear the complaint, you know, this neighborhood's just got too many really good restaurants. Where are all the bad restaurants when you want one? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's and right. so the, the notion of another good restaurant opening up, meaning another church, boldly, unabashedly, unashamedly proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching people how to read it, how to apply it, how to live it. Listen, we can do with thousands more like that. So kudos to you. That's exciting news. And I think, again, goes back to the heart of, of what we were discussing a moment ago, and that is with everything going on and swirling around us, let's not get distracted by the noise because that's the enemy wanting to do that take our eyes off the prize and instead focus on the crisis du jour instead Mm -hmm. of being eternally minded and saying, what can and should we be doing right now to strengthen the stakes of our tents and to be prepared to reach more for Christ? Because scripture does also tell us, yes, in the end times, there'll be a great falling away, but also there will be a tremendous harvest. And I think God is queuing us up here for something. Again, I don't want to go as far as to say I've got the inside track and I know the date and the hour, but I think that sense of urgency and the tremendous opportunity that God has given us is one that we do not want to miss. I think you're 100% right, and we're just excited to be part of his redemptive plan. God has given every Christian a little piece of redemptive real estate, and that's what we want to do is to expand his kingdom. So we're excited. We really are. God's doing a lot down there at Hillside Church of San Jose. Again, they meet Sunday mornings in person at 8, 9.30, and 11, with online services available at 9.30 and 11 a.m. as well. Located at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. Information available on the web at hillside.org. That's hillside.org. I am struck, too, based, Pastor Crosby, on your, your geographic location, that as much as you're right in the heart of the Silicon Valley, Valley, you're really in the heart of a tremendously diverse place, and the church very much reflects that. 
It does. It's, you know, our community is about a third Hispanic, about a third Asian, Indo-Asian, uh, and uh, uh, Sino-Asian, and then you know, you, you, a third uh, Caucasian and other in other uh, ethnicities, and our church is beginning to reflect that. Uh, we're thrilled. We have people from all from countries that, you know, from Botswana and Nigeria. We have people from India. We have people from Korea. We have people from all over the place, and we have people from San Jose. But this is a picture of the kingdom of God. You know, it's kind of a sad story, but historically, the 11 o'clock hour, let's call it the hour that everybody goes to church, is one of the most segregated hours in America. And yet when people go to work, they have people of all kinds of nationalities and all colors. And that's the way the church should be. And that's what we're striving to become. And we, I think we've made progress by God's grace and providence in that. And, uh, and that's what, that continues to be our mission as well, to reach all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Well, and I think that not only is um, something that thrills the heart of God, it, it, it is representative of a church that represents what the Bay Area diversity looks like. But most importantly, you alluded to this a moment ago, it also represents the diversity of heaven. Because Amen. I'm a firm believer when we get to the pearly gates, uh, Peter is not going to say, okay, the, the Baptist section <laughs> is <laughs> over here. Presbyterians, you hang out over there. Uh, no, it, it's going to be come one, come all, and and our identity, and this is as it should be, our identity should not be wrapped up in the language we speak, in the color of our skin, in the kind of food that we eat, though those are all wonderful things, but ultimately our identity should be in Christ because we are made not in the image of our, like in my case, my relatives in Italy. No, we are made in the image of very God himself. And those are at the core, our roots, and they are to be celebrated. And I think it's it's encouraging and delightful to hear that God is doing that today at Hillside Church. Well, thank you. We're thrilled. We're humbled and we're honored. God is just so good to us. You know, we are an intergenerational church we have, it's just been a pleasure to serve the people of Hillside. They are just a loving, welcoming people, and they have supported uh, the changes in direction and ministry, and they have really just put themselves out there. I love them, and they have loved me and my family through thick and thin. Well, we appreciate the time today, Pastor. And again, I want to invite folks, maybe you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area in search of a church home. We invite you to check out Hillside Church of San Jose. They meet at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. Information available on the web at hillside.org. That's hillside.org. We're always delighted to spend some time with Dr. Keith Crosby. A tremendous blessing not only to Hillside, but a blessing to all of us here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Pastor, we appreciate your heartbeat for ministry, your passion for the gospel, your dedication to proclaiming God's word, unabashed and unedited, as they say. (laughs) And uh, we thank you so much for spending a couple of moments with us here today to get a chance to know a bit about you, your ministry, and uh, what God is doing today at Hillside Church. Well, thank you for having me, Craig. The pleasure was all mine. It's been a privilege. Father, we thank you that we could gather this morning bright and early to study your word to look into the book of Revelation to continue our series and to uh, apply what we learn, Father. It's not just about all the uh, exciting end-time stuff, Lord. Uh, it's about what was written in chapters and verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads this book aloud and blessed is the one who hears what is written in it and keeps it, for the time is near. Lord, help us, therefore, to live with urgency to live, to learn, to apply what we read for the glory of God, for the good of others, and our own growth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we continue in our series. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, perhaps today, we're in a series called Future Grace, the Apocalypse of John. And we are in a series on the book of Revelation. It comes on the heels of another series called Church Matters hanging in when times get tough, which is, was a study of First and Second Timothy. And in a way, the study of Revelation lands that plane. Because how the church conducts herself is important to God. Church matters matter to God, and so they should matter to us. And so 
over the last two weeks, Chris and I have kind of set up the uh, larger study. And last week, he gave you a glimpse of the glorified Christ, which is a Christ that our culture too much forgets sometimes. Uh, A Christ whose appearance was terrifying to John, his beloved apostle. And he... It's a Christ that we need to remember that is not just our Savior, but is our God and will be the judge of those at the end of the age, the quick and the dead and the sons of men, it says in God's word. So we are entering into a, a mini-series within this series, uh, and that is uh, called Listening to the One We Love, and this is part one today, and what we're looking at is Revelation chapters two and three over the next three weeks. And... One of the things that you see here is that Christ has very specific ideas about how the church should conduct herself. What we find here is a letter written to seven churches, seven real churches in Asia. And today's message really is all about a tale of seven churches in that uh, we get to look at sort of a spiritual report card that he assesses. Uh, Some people uh, call it a a performance evaluation. Those of us who work in the business world before coming into ministry are familiar with those. Uh, I thought about what to title it, and I think listening to the one we say we love is important because that's one of the themes of the book of Revelation. You know, Jesus says, are you listening? Blessed is the one who hears. Hear what the Spirit says. Now, You could call it, what would Jesus say about your church? There's a great book on that that's just on these two chapters by a a good scholar named uh, Richard Mayhew. But the point is, is that Christ has something very specific to say about the church, about his expectations for his church, the bride that his father has given him. And so I want to really focus this on the listening themes because these days we tend to think, less and less about what Jesus wants and more and more about what we want. Uh, we, we want to have it our way. You may remember that great uh, fast food jingle years ago, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King. And no, I have no, own no stock in Burger King or anything like that. But rather than having it G- Jesus' way, often churches become a shadow of their former selves. Uh, they become... Uh, uh, sanctified social clubs. Uh, they become, they, they, they begin to exist for some other reason than his reason. And in this letter to these seven churches, uh, we find uh, five of seven churches either having drifted or drifted. And we find them not revering Christ as they should have. Not as it were listening, you know, when he said at the transfiguration, when the father said of the son, when, the, when Peter and wanted to build these three tents, like we read about in the scripture reading a moment ago, he was going to kind of set up his own little deal, well intended, but not according to God's design or specifications. You have this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter had great ideas. He was sincere but he wasn't paying attention and he was talking rather than listening. And really, that's kind of what's going on here in chapters two and three. God is talking to us and the question is, are we listening? Because when you look at these seven churches over the next few weeks, understand that there is one that, or, or two that are just dead, you know, just dead. Then there are three that are preaching the gospel. They are checking the right boxes seemingly but they get a death sentence along with the other two that are dead. Five of seven churches get a death sentence. They are found wanting. They are offered possible reprieves if they return to God, if they repent and return to and respond to God. And that's a shocking thing when you think about it, and we'll see more of that. But the reality is, particularly in our day, just like back then, churches need to listen to the one they say they love, to listen well, and to listen good. And this is what we need to do as individual Christians and as a Christian church. So with no further ado or setup, let's get into the text. I want to set the context by going back to Revelation 
chapter 1, 1 through 3, verses 10 and 11 as well. And then we'll get into today the first of the seven churches, Ephesus, in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. So let's look at Revelation 1, 1 through 3, and verses 10 and 11. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of the Lord and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who, and here it has to do with listening and obeying, and keep what is written in it for because the time is near. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. On to chapter two. To the angel, as Chris indicated last week, that is the pastor or the lead elder of the church at Ephesus write, the words who holds the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we learned last week the golden lampstands are the churches, the seven churches. Listen to what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Sounds pretty good. Verse 4, but, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased, and we and they should listen to him. So what you're going to see here as we work through these two chapters is sort of a Jesus is going to take a template, uh, sort of a performance evaluation. Uh, he's going to conduct, you might say, a building inspection of the, of the foundation and support of the truth, the church of the living God. And in each case, there's going to be five elements to what he has to do with them. He's going to give them, he's going to call to them, he's going to address them, he's going to give them a commendation, he's going to praise them for what they're doing right, and then he's going to cite them. He's going to, there's going to be a violation and he's going to ticket them. When I was in the resort business and the restaurants, you, the health inspectors came in and they inspected everything. They commended what you did. They acknowledged the good things and then they cited you. And then with each citation, four came consequences. Correct the citation or I'm going to shut your restaurant down. I'm going to remove your lampstand, you know, like he says to Ephesus. Or if you were building a building, if we were building a hotel, they'd just stop the whole construction project right there. They would, they would come in, they would address us, they would commend the good things, and they would cite us for what was not right, for what was below standard, for what was unacceptable. And, and then they would explain to us the consequences. <laughs> Fix this or else. All these other things are great, but this is a life safety issue. Fix it. And then the good ones encouraged us. Look, you know, we've, we've dealt with you before. We know that you guys are trying to hard, you know. This is what's going on here in this passage. You've got this spiritual performance evaluation, this spiritual building inspection, this spiritual performance evaluation of this church in Ephesus. And there is a divine standard which must be met. God does not grade on the curve. 
There is no academic or spiritual inflation in God's school. And so we have these ways, uh, the way he addresses them. I want you to watch also as we move through these two chapters, and this is all set up here, is you can tell, you might kind of say, what kind of mood he's in when he addresses them, because there is a spiritual mode of address, and I get listed several in the slides, but I'm just going to just talk about a couple. He might say to them, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am him who was and is to come. I am the eternal God. I am him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Or he might talk about himself as the one whose mouth is like a two-edged sword. This speaks to the, the nature of their condition, the gravity of their situation, and how he's approaching them as a judge or as a shepherd, as their God. Sometimes he is more gentle and reassuring than others, depending on the condition of the church. Sometimes not so much. And this is uh, what you want to watch for because this is a tell. It will tell you what's coming. I also want to talk to you about the motive of what he's doing here because he says some pretty, pretty tough things to these churches. And people often love to say, well, where's the grace? Oh boy, that's harsh. You know, uh, but he has a motive in mind and you see it in Revelation 3.19 when he addresses the lukewarm church that nauseates him, that he wants to spit out of his mouth. In Revelation 3.19, we see his motive, his rationale for all that he's doing. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. His motive is love. He cares for them. He cares for all of his people, all those who are born again. He loves all those churches that he walks among. You know, he walks among the seven lampstands. Emmanuel, God with us. He holds those leaders in his hand as the sovereign of the universe. He is intimately involved in the affairs of local churches worldwide and in these seven churches. And many people fail to understand that. They, they misunderstand, and so many churches fail to listen. So what I'm going to do during this mini-series is group these churches by spiritual condition. So I'm not going to follow the text exactly sequentially, so just work with me on this. But we're going to start with the church at Ephesus. We're going to look at the call in verse 1, the commendations in verses 2, 3, and 6, the citation in verse 4, the consequences in verse 5, and the encouragements in verse 6 and verse 7. So we start with the call, and that is in verse 1, to the angel, to the pastor, to the leader of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars, that's all the lead pastors in those churches, in his right hand, it's a symbol of his authority and his care and his power and his sovereignty and his provision, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You're going to see the news is not all bad, as indicated by his mode of address here. He speaks as one who not only holds their destiny, their survival, their future in his hands, but he speaks to them as one who is well acquainted with them. This is Emmanuel, God with us, who walks among his people, who walks among the churches. He speaks to them as one who cares, who oversees those who shepherd the flock of God among them. Now some people wonder why he starts with Ephesus and we can get into more of some of the technical details of this, this, uh, th- these passages a little bit later but Ephesus was, you might say, the mother church of these churches in Asia. The indications are Ephesus might have been the source of the planters who went out and started these churches. Uh, it's also the first church on a Roman postal route We'll talk about that later. But the bottom line here is this is the most prominent of those seven churches. And he is going to make them an example for all to consider because this is the church among churches, so to speak. And when you look at the history of Ephesus, it was taught by the dream team. Ephesus was pastored by the dream team. Who pastored Ephesus? Who poured into Ephesus? The Apostle Paul? Timothy? Right? Apollos, who, you know, that's the Alexandrian Jew who knew the scriptures in the book of Acts. And John, the disciple that Jesus loved, John himself, who writes to them now. 
they had every advantage. They were a prominent Roman city in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. They were the church. And so he's going to start with them. To to whom much is given, much is expected. So he addresses them somewhat reassuringly. Then what? Now we come to the commendation. Look what he says to them. Listen to this. Listen along with them. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, speaking to their persecution, and how you cannot bear those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's a picture of a God who knows and loves his people. Here's a picture of a Savior who cares, who empathizes, who sympathizes. As one who has walked among them during his earthly public ministry, God walking among men, Emmanuel, God with us, who is tempted in every way such as we are, as it tells us in the book of Hebrews. This is the God who is with them always, even at the end of the age, the ultimate Savior. And he is their great high priest. He is the intercessor between God and men, and he cares about them. And notice that he acknowledges their faithfulness in enduring persecution. He acknowledges, I would say commends, their love of truth. They don't like those who are evil. They don't like false prophets, false teachers. They don't have any time for false apostles. He appreciates their moral purity because they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and we'll get into them later on. There's much to commend, and he commends them. He acknowledges and affirms, generally speaking, that they hate what he hates, and that's all good. Here you have an established church, roughly 40 years old, a prominent church that seems to have checked all the right boxes. They have good doctrine, they have good morals, they have good teaching, they show discernment. Can you expect much more than that? He lovingly acknowledges that as the one who walks among them, who walks over them, who cares for them, who watches over their leaders. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I hate often, also. He opens their evaluation with a reassuring posture and words of commendation for all that they do right. And then he fails them. Then he gives them a failing grade. The sovereign, holy, loving, righteous building inspector cites them with a violation that would appear to be fatal. They get a red tag, you might say. And that's number three, the citation. Here's what he cites them for. Look at verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Something is fundamentally wrong here, foundationally wrong. What's going on here? What we see here is an ailment common among established churches then and even today. Prominent churches, famous churches, they begin resting on their laurels. They back off, they lose steam, they lose focus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on what their first love was. Was it a love for God? Was it a love for each other? Was it a love for the lost? Probably all three. How can we know? We can't be sure exactly what it was, but we know that it was noticeable to him, and it affected the way that they did church, the the, the way that they lived in the community in which they were. How do we know that? Well, because of the context Look at verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and here is the icing on the cake here, this moment of clarity. Do the works you did at first. It wasn't just their attitude, it was their actions. You know, we've talked about this before. Right thinking leads to right attitudes, actions, words, and deeds. For individual Christians and for individual Christian churches. So God is saying, go back to where you were when this church was born and do what you did when you first started out, when you were nothing. 
So many Christians and churches can learn from this because a lot of time the flame that is lit, ignited in our souls by the Spirit of God in the people of God, sometimes like when you adjust the gas burner on your stove, it kind of goes from bright to blue and sometimes we go too far in the wrong direction and our love grows cold. And, and so he's saying to them, you haven't finished the race. And that, you, you've got more to do and, and you stop doing the very thing that, you, that made you what you were in the first place. Some people call Ephesus the church of the lost love. And I think that's true because love manifests itself in righteous words, actions, and deeds. They were dotting their I's, they were crossing their T's, they had gospel preaching, things were still happening there, all their friends were still there, but they probably had begun like so many churches you see today, living in the past. You know the remember when churches that look back to their glory days? You know what, when you're looking back to your glory days, if you're not dead already, you're gonna be dead sooner than later. And that's what's kind of going on here. Perhaps they were believing their own press clippings and news releases as rock star churches and rock star pastors sometimes do today. Look what he says, you just can't miss it. Look at verses four and five A, if you wanna call it that. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. That's repentance is a change of heart that brings about a change of mind and direction. Repent and do the works you did at first. This week's podcast coming out this Wednesday is all about the church as the social club. There's a lot there I'm not going to go into here, but you could use that as an application as you think about church. But here's the thing we need to understand. We need to understand that the church belongs to God, not us. We don't get, you know, to back off, to step back and take a breather. There's no such thing as retirement in God's economy. And God wants us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That means it costs us something, time, treasure, talents, ability, convenience. We're to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Why? Because that's our minimal service to him. And we'll get into more of that later. And Ephesus for whatever reason, had stopped that. It seems like they might be coasting from the context and what he says there about you need to do the works you used to do. You've stopped doing these things. And and, and then we come to the consequences in verse five. The consequences. People don't like consequences. Choices have consequences. And that's an inescapable reality in this fallen world. Look what he says to them in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here comes the consequence. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless, unless you repent. If you do not repent, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He basically says repent or perish. Repent or perish. To this great church, Ephesus, to this church and you read in the book of Acts all the things that they did, the wonderful things. The people burned all their books that were for sorcery and witchcraft and all this stuff. They endured all this persecution. And he says, you know, you've you've done a lot right, but I have this one thing against you and if you don't correct it, it's over. It's over. I'll remove your lampstand unless you repent. Now some people look at this and go, where's the grace? Where's the mercy? This isn't the Jesus that I know. Well, if it ain't, it ought to be. This is him who holds the seven angels in his hand, the seven lampstands. He walks among his people and the grace is in this that he gives them a chance. You have this, these spiritually fatty churches with spiritually fatty minds filled with nice people, Ephesus, I'm sure it was, teaching the gospel, good folks, moral folks, 
but they've stopped doing what they used to do. You know, there's an old saying that successful people usually stop doing that which made them successful in the first place, and they fail. And this is a picture of this. I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love, the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. You see, judging by his comments, they should have known better. Perhaps they'd become comfortable, you know, we four and no more, all my friends are here, so I'm happy, I'm comfortable. Maybe they had a, what we used to call an RIP, a rest in peace mentality. They are retired in place. You see that with pastors, they get, they're in a place for 40 or 50 years and they think they own the place and they, they start backing off. That's not, what's, that's not what we do as Christians or Christian churches. You see it in churches. They stop doing local outreach. They still support the missionaries far away, but they don't reach out into their community, and they begin to bleed out and die over time. They have a we've earned our rest mentality. We've done a lot already. How much more could you expect us to do, Lord? Where's the grace here? Let me share a passage with with you, and it's not in the slides, but it kind of gives you a picture of Jesus' mindset towards those who serve him, those he loved, those he died for, those he suffered untold agonies for on the cross. And this is one of those passages that nobody ever memorizes, seemingly. And it's in Luke 17, uh, verses 7 through 10. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and some other people, and he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather, instead, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That is so counterintuitive for the American church today. You know, this is the era of participation ribbons and everybody gets A's and standards are low and tolerance is high. But this is the glorified Christ of chapter 1. This is the the God who receives worship in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the 24 elders day and night chant before his throne. And this is the God of all churches. And these are his minimal expectations. And so we don't get to back off. We don't get to rest on our laurels. We were raised up for such a time as this. And this is a sobering, sobering sobering passage here because here you have the church of churches and he's like no I'm afraid something's going to have to change and change radically remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first if not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place there is the grace and there is the mercy that he gave him another chance that he takes the time to reach out to them to talk to them to address them to affirm them, to commend them, and to challenge them to excel still more, not to give up. Sometimes, you know, we dread things like that. You know, it's, you you get called to correction. We were talking yesterday about, you know, correcting children, and sometimes you're in a place where you can't correct them, and you say to them, we'll deal with this when we get home. And then they spend the rest of that outing dreading getting home, but in the end, it leads to restoration and repentance, and sometimes a little uncomfortable, you know, expending of kinetic energy. This is what's going on here. He is, he loves them. He sees them headed in the wrong direction. He knows the plans that he has for them, and he calls them to account. He shows them the error of their ways after, after acknowledging all the good things that they've done and he also shows them the consequences of their action. And then what happens? Well, we come to number five, encouragement. Encouragement. 
Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Listen, he says. This is the listening thing, right? Blessed is the one who hears and keeps. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, some translations say overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look, he's saying as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven churches that he loves, who say they love him, he says, listen, I know what you're capable of. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil. And you hate what I hate. You hate the the works of the Nicolaitans, the immorality of that. I know what you're capable of. He says, listen, I also know what you stopped doing. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. Remember your first love. Remember how it was when you first trusted me and we came together. And then he says, listen to me, repent and turn back to me or I will come and I will remove your lampstand. He says, snap out of it before it's too late. Let him hear what the Spirit says, those who are willing to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the one who overcomes, to the one who repents, to the one who stays the course, to the one who bounces back, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. He's talking to Christ followers here. He's not talking to the world. Now, in churches, you have kind of a mixed multitude. But here he's speaking to the people who are his. He's saying, snap out of it. Remember, remember those early days when your faith burned hot and your love for me was real and palpable and do the works you did then. He's saying, finish what we started Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. There is laid up for you the crown of righteousness that I bestow on those whom I love and those who love me and those who rejoice at my appearing. To them I will grant. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. He's saying to these churches and he's saying to Ephesus, this church among churches, you're not done yet. You're not done yet. There's so much more for you to do. Don't back off. Press on. I'm sure we've all seen those uh, YouTube videos of the sprinter. He's running toward the tape and he kind of backs off and puts his fist up, you know, in victory and three people pass him. You know, if you like the Winter Olympics, there's a terrible one of an ice skater and a speed skater doing the same thing. He's saying to them and to us by extension as we read these words, don't do that. Press on press on listen to me do what you used to do the way that you used to do it that applies to Ephesus and all these other churches to some extent but that was Ephesus's problem there was a lot right there but what was wrong was fatal and he wants them to get back on course get back on the path so they can hear one day well done good and faithful servants so they can enter into their father's rest. And you, know, you look at this and say, well, yeah, this is a letter to seven churches. This is a letter to a church in Ephesus. This is a letter written in 95 AD. I'm living in the 21st century, and I'm not a church. I'm an individual Christian. What's in it for me? Well, this applies just as much to you and I, to me and you as individuals who may be maturing in our faith, who may be further down that faith walk, who who may have backed off a little bit, who may have lost perspective, who may have said, well, I'm I'm no worse than the next guy. But this is, is a letter from another world, a love letter from the one who went to the cross in my place, in your place, for your sin and my sin, and who rose and conquered death sin and hell for us and who has prepared a place for us and he is speaking to us through his word and the question is will we listen as individuals and as a church family so what do we do with this let me give you some suggestions for application number one listen to what the spirit says is he talking to you Uh, he's talking to me 
He's talking to us. How do you listen to God? Well, we speak to God in prayer, and he speaks back through his word. Pick up and read. Take the next few weeks and just read Revelation chapter 2 and 3 over and over again. And see if anywhere in there, if the shoe fits, and if it does, wear it. Repent. And while you're doing that, too, examine your heart before the Lord. Do you want what God wants? It's not just good enough to hate what he hates, but we have to love what he loves. We have to do his will, the will of him who sent us, who said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, discipling them, mentoring them, training them to do all that I've commanded. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's raised you and I up for such a time as this, to reach the lost, to play offense for the kingdom of God. Are you ready, willing, and able to do that? Examine yourself. And as you look at some of the harsh things that Jesus is going to say to the church and to us through the pages of Scripture, down the corridors of time and history, remember his motive. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. No one's ever loved you, church, like he has. No one's ever loved you and I individually like he has. We've never experienced the love that comes anywhere close to the love of God in Christ. And finally, don't react against what we read today. Respond to it. Repent, change, and grow. God's not done with you or me or this church. We are constantly growing and changing in the process of spiritual growth, which some people call sanctification. And what we see here are God's expectations, and they are non-negotiables. There's there's no backing off. There's no cutting yourself any slack. Will any of you say to a servant, come in at once and recline at the table, but will he rather not say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that were commanded, say, we were unworthy servants. We only did what was our duty. We can rest on the other side. We have fields to plow, seeds to sow crops to water and harvest so let's do our duty let's listen to him and respond as a church and as individual Christ followers let's pray Heavenly Father these are hard uh, words to read hard concepts to uh, receive Father but we know it's all good because you are good. We know that your motive is that you love us and you want what is best for us, better than the perfect parent, Lord. You are our perfect God and Savior. Help us, therefore, to listen because the time is near. Help us to make the most of the time, Father. Help us to always remember and remind ourselves that you have raised us up for such a time as this and placed us where you placed us to bring glory to you, good to others, and yes, growth to ourselves. Help us, O Father, to excel still more in obedience, in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.